when the gospel of Mark opens with quotations from the old Testament, right? Mm -hmm. The gospel writer isn't just thinking, okay, I want them to read this section. The gospel writer is thinking this, where this section comes from says something important about what's happening right now in the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's wanting you not to just read those words on the page, but wanting you to know what the words on the on the page here said on the page they originally painted. Dedicated to those deconstructing, reconstructing their faith. I'm actually thinking of changing that tagline, by the way. Um, but maybe that's another conversation. Uh, we are back again after a long time of being off. Uh, we were off for a break, so we didn't do much during that time. I spent a lot of it traveling for family and some other things that happened uh, over Christmas. Um, yeah, and I, I was just like, hammering everything out at the end of the semester before that so uh some of you might be happy or sad to see my sorry face back on the internet but here we are um and daniel is with me we have a interesting discussion hopefully as they all have been uh today kind of planned out something something regarding what daniel wrote about last semester and something that's been uh weaved through conversations that haven't been recorded um yeah. since then so uh daniel if you want to tell everybody kind of maybe what you've been up to and what yeah. we're going to talk about so uh life of a seminary student <laughs> semester hit and you and i were like okay uh let's do class and and not this for a while um and i mean i guess we kind of made several attempts at it but um it never really panned out and break was crazy. Um, so last semester, I took a um, class on uh, history of Christianity one. So it's a class sequence. And in that class, I wrote um, a paper using some of Augustine's thoughts on biblical interpretation. Um, and you and I have had a decent bit of conversations about that topic, not recorded, just kind of casually. Um, and those led to some very interesting conversations and something we thought would be pretty good to record. Um, so the basic premise, I guess, if you want me to go ahead and get started. Yeah, go um, ahead. Is that uh, biblical interpretation is best framed as artistic in nature. Um, what do you mean, Daniel? Isn't it, isn't it like, isn't a plain reading the best reading? So uh, do you want me to just go ahead and start reading the quote? That might best address your question. Um, so an excerpt from my paper. Um, at this point, it becomes essential to view interpretation of the biblical right, Hang corpus. on, sorry. Before, yeah. before, you, uh, before you do this quotation here, kind yeah. of give people oh, yeah, a snapshot yeah. of the <laughs> subject of the paper and then yeah. like why Augustine is an important person to pinpoint in this yeah. frame. So um, Augustine is important because, well, one, he's St. Augustine. Um, I mean, if you haven't heard of him, you haven't really 
you don't know much about church history for sure. Um, he, he has done a lot of biblical interpretation himself and um, has been very influential in Western Christian thought for, I mean, basically since his day. Um, he, his general perspective on biblical interpretation is, I mean, he views very strongly this idea that there is one objective truth um, that exists, at least when it comes to mutually exclusive claims. Mm-hmm. Um, but he recognizes that it's very difficult, if not impossible, for fallible humans to recognize what that objective truth is purely and isolated. Um, and so through this, um, in his confessions, um, which is one of his um, more well-known works, he um, talks about different interpretations of Genesis 1. Um, he calls them literal interpretations, which is interesting because almost none of the literal interpretations that he lists in a very long list match up with what modern, specifically American Christians would call the literal interpretation of Genesis 1, which is kind of funny um, and can make some people uncomfortable. But I will remind you, this is St. Augustine of Hippo, who is responsible for most of the way Western Christian thought has progressed since his time, um, 1,500-ish years ago. Um, So his thought processes processes are very well ingrained in Christianity. And um, not that I think he's always correct. I don't. Um, yeah, we had a whole episode where I disagreed with his conception yeah. of original sin. So yeah. if you want an episode where I agree with Augustine, here we are. Yeah. Um, and, and so, I mean, that just shows the complexity and nuance of thought and truth and seeking after God. Um, and as we will see, I don't think that Augustine is afraid of people disagreeing with him. Mm-hmm. Now, I think there comes a point in which he says, if you disagree too starkly, you're no longer Christian. But that's a, a boundary that's up for debate um, and, and one that needs to be talked about. And that's kind of a broader topic that's probably not one for our conversation today. But um, yeah, so I, I wrote this paper kind of exploring the way in which Augustine himself conceptualizes biblical interpretation. And Mm -hmm. I make the point in this paper that biblical interpretation is best done in an artistic manner. So um, I guess I'll say a bit more about what I mean by that. And then I'll let you um, read that, that snippet. So um, and you want me to just go ahead and use the analogy? Uh, well, you're going to read it here in a minute. So okay, yeah. yeah. Um, why don't why don't why don't we do this? I will read this snippet just so you know that we're not like this is again like what I was also trying to do in our conversation about um, inspiration and inerrancy. Mm-hmm. Is it yeah. like this isn't us just like riffing on one thing because we're trying to be cool or yeah. like different. Um, kind of like prove the point that this is much a debate in all of scholarship about approaches to hermeneutics essentially 
Well, all of scholarship and Christian life, I mean, Augustine yeah. goes way back. Oh yeah, uh, is that I, in my in my uh, hermeneutics class uh, last semester we had this book, uh, Elements of Biblical Exegesis, by Michael Gorman, and he has a little section uh, in the first chapter on different ways to exegete, different ways to uh, get meaning, let's say, out of the text, and he has just this really short two-paragraph section on exegesis as art. Uh, and he says this, to quote, the word method, however, should not be uh, equated precisely with scientific method or historical method. Good reading, like good conversation or any sort of good investigation, is an art more than it is a science. Exegesis, as we will see throughout this book, is therefore an art. To be sure, there are certain principles and elements to consider. We'll get to that here in a minute, to continue the quotation. But knowing what to ask of a text, what to think about a text, what to say about a text can never be accomplished with complete certainty or done with method alone. Rather, an exegete needs not only principles, rules, hard work, and research skills, but also intuition, imagination, sensitivity, and a bit of serendipity on occasion. The, tax, the task of exegesis requires, therefore, enormous intellectual and even spiritual energy. In fact, as Hebrew Bible Old Testament scholars, Old Testament scholar William Brown puts it, good exegesis is, to quote him, a practice of empathy, wonder, and hospitality. The result, he rightly claims, can be both transformative and joyful. Many people experience this art, therefore, as rewarding spiritual discipline. This has certainly been true for most of the great biblical interpreters in both Judaism and Christianity. As the Anglican Book of Common Prayer tells us, scripture is something to hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. And I think what's important is that last paragraph of that first section. To be sure, there are certain principles and elements to consider, but knowing what to ask of a text, what to think about a text, what to what to say about a text can never be accomplished with complete certainty or done with method alone. Rather, an exegete needs not only principles, rules, and hard work, but intuition, imagination, sensitivity, and even a bit of serendipity. What's super funny is that I, um, I hadn't read that passage, and I ended up using some of the exact same words in my essay. Well, there we go. Um, yeah, yeah and that's I think, from my textbook last semester on hermeneutics, biblical yeah. interpretation. Yeah, that's awesome. That's so awesome. this is very much in line with what you wrote about Augustine's approach. Yeah. About how to have some of those elements of not just pure scientific mm -hmm. or historical method in yeah. your uh, in your frame to interpret what's going on in the Bible. So if you want to read yeah. uh, a little bit of your your take from from that essay go ahead yeah so um i spent some time introducing the the topic and um specifically talking about different interpretations that augustine um, that are popular in augustine's time or that augustine holds for genesis one specifically i mean that kind of serves as the backdrop for his conversation about this topic um, <clears throat> so I say, at this point, it becomes essential to view the interpretation of the biblical corpus as artistic in nature. Augustine does not allow for the um, indecisive framework of postmodern interpretive lenses, 
as many Christians today also protest. Augustine deeply desires structure and believes in one objective truth. Excuse me, that's something that I said earlier. Um, but as we will see, he does not think that we can certainly know what the truth is in any given situation. This means interpreting the Bible is best done by capturing the meaning subjectively expressed in words with multiple possible meanings and translations. We should progress through the biblical text in an exploratory and expressive fashion, looking for meaning buried within, not just objectively stated on the surface of a passage. Through biblical... Go, sorry, but there's no, no, a refute yeah. of plain reading. Yeah, exactly. Um, a plain reading, well, I mean, I, this sort of calls into question what it means to plainly read, right? I'll, I'll read this, um, this last or this middle section again. Uh, interpreting the Bible is best done by capturing the meaning subjectively expressed in words with multiple possible meanings and translations. A plain reading can mean multiple things simultaneously. That's why Augustine's literal interpretation and our littler, literal interpretation and his contemporaries' literal interpretation are very different sometimes. It's because one word can mean multiple things. And when you string multiple words together, all of those words together can mean a multiplicity of multiple things. And so it becomes incredibly difficult to say th this is objectively what the text says. Um, so I'll, I'll continue. Through biblical interpretation, uh, though biblical interpretation is artistic in this way, many artists express that their art, is um, their art production is most fruitful and beautiful when done within constraints. Music, for example, has at least the constraints of tempo, key, and a balance of harmony and melody, among other things. We rarely consider it artful when someone sings off key, when harmonies don't align, or when tempo, the tempo of two musicians are off by even half a beat. When these um, confining structures, uh, within these confining structures, a plethora of ranges is given to be artistic, expressive, and, and exploratory but the framework must stay in place and they were created for a reason. Thus, and similarly, biblical interpretation is artistic. Um, so explain think, that a little bit. Yeah, so music is an art form, right? No one would say, and there are some, you could say scientific things about music, but generally speaking, if I said, is music art or science? Anyone on the street would say it's art, right? Um, and the, the reason we say that is because it's very expressive and exploratory and creative, imaginative, right? I think similarly, um, and as your quote um, from your hermeneutics book talked about, biblical interpretation involves a little intuition, a little serendipity, a little imaginative expression, um, because you're taking these sometimes objective and sometimes subjective words and you're stringing them together in a way that's supposed to make meaning. Um, so just like, I mean, with that said, 
it's our goal as biblical interpreters to provide as much structure as we can to keep ourselves in check. So just like music has tempo and key and harmony and melody and all these other things that go into it, I think it's important for us as biblical interpreters to also set safeguards and structures around ourselves that can help us keep ourselves and others in check, but also help steer us in the right directions. Um, and I have some ideas about what these are, um, but I think you had um, a further analogy about just the artistic nature of scripture. Uh, yeah, we can go. We can go there specifically now if you want to, uh, yeah. or if you want to jump to some modern examples so people kind of wrap their heads around what we're trying to say. Yeah, that um, works. Yeah, I think let's go there first to kind of give absolutely uh, like a parallel. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking about like <clears throat> thinking about even more than the example we've already kind of talked about in a previous conversation is. Um, there's there's part of this frame of biblical interpretation as art that um, to engage in it, it has an assumption that the Bible is doing art, which to some that might sound yeah. self-evident, but to others, I don't think we think about it very much, which is why I made the video about uh, reading the Bible as fiction, which is yeah. like talking about how the art is doing uh, like literary narrative mm -hmm. things right yeah. um because there's confining we and we talked about this in my new testament class a couple of days ago uh even within <clears throat> different structures be it films or or literary genres there are uh there are constraints even different music genres there's certain constraints yeah. or there's certain expectations let's say mm -hmm. um right like edm plays by different rules than pop music yeah like even though they might be heavily electronic at this point in both respects right there's um different rules to how each of those genres work um that are in some sense uh like i'll use the phrase like self-censoring right um yeah. and this is what gets really interesting about like uh like the mashup and like the subgenres. so like I know mm -hmm. one of my favorite bands, Dance Gavin Dance, for instance, some of you might be familiar. Um, they're like post-hardcore or like or like math hardcore in terms of like guitarists. Mm -hmm. Um, but then like you have uh oh gosh, what's his name? Uh Tillian, who does like the pop style vocal, and then John Mass, who does the scream vocal, and so like but they're still playing by certain rules, even in those genres, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. The instrumentation is like hardcore, like post-hardcore rock. Yeah. And like the drums are on beat and they go with like, and even yeah. the vocals, like there's a switches or overlays, but they like have to work in harmony with each other. Mm -hmm. um, so even in the mashups, even in the like bent genre bending that happens a lot these days with the yeah. music, you still have to abide by rules, even of the genres you're mashing. Well, and, and here's so, the thing too, right? Is music is art, but even within defining genres, you've already defined a structure, right? Mm -hmm. A framework in which you operate. 
And I mean, Peterson talks about this, I think a little bit is that, I mean, we need structures, we need frameworks in order to be able to operate well as human beings. Um, and so I think it's, yeah, it's just interesting because within at least the artistic mode, it's the structure and the expectation that that structure brings that then sometimes even allows you as the artist to subvert that expectation yeah. and do something that's unexpected. And the Bible does that all the time, which is yeah. I mean, one of the most artistic things you can do. Yeah, and I'm even, I'm even thinking of, oh gosh, you know, when I'm here, filmmakers, Quentin Tarantino, right? Yeah. Like yeah. when he, I mean, Pulp Fiction was really, I mean, yes, Reservoir Dogs was, you know, fairly big, at least in the like film circuits it went in in the late 90s when it came out. But yeah. Pulp Fiction is what put him on the map. And that's what mm -hmm. made nonlinear storytelling kind of thing. Yeah. Like, I think you could make a thesis that like without Tarantino, you'd have no Nolan, but maybe that's a different conversation. Yeah. Um, but he still plays within, and Tarantino self-admits this all the time. He's like, yeah, but I'm playing in genre mm -hmm. and subgenre. So like, yeah. even though I might be subverting certain expectations about events that happen, be them historical and historical thinking of like once upon a time in Hollywood, yeah, um, like he is doing kind of a genre that he's made popular, revisionist history in Glorious Bastards and in um, Once Upon a Time. And even in yeah. like, Django it seems to always come up in my film conversations but like he's yeah. doing a like I've talked about this before on the podcast but he's like doing a inversion mm -hmm. of the western genre but still using western tropes yeah who make it clear what genre he's in yeah. and he's like doing some kind of a revisionist history story mm -hmm. in in the conflicts and in the characters of that movie yeah. right and even in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood spoiler alert but I mean, I think most people have seen it by now who want to yeah. see it. Yeah. Um, he's playing with your expectation of like what you know happened to Sharon Tate. Yeah. So then when the scene happens where they end up going to the wrong house and Brad Pitt just beats the like living crap out of everybody, you're like, yes, right? But yeah. that's what he wants. Same yeah. thing with Inglourious Bastards. Like yeah. when you see Hitler get killed, you're like, oh yeah. And even Django, like you're like, oh yeah, mm -hmm. sweet revenge, right? Yeah. So he's even playing in the like revenge subgenre, yeah. In his historical, uh, like revisionist history genre, yeah. In like the war movie genre, be it *Glorious Bastards*, or like the western genre, mm -hmm. be it um, *Django Unchained*. Yeah. And even at that, he's playing with like Django. The, the film came before that mm -hmm. right yeah yeah so like again this can get to like the other example we have but just to point out that like even in the people who like break the mold quote unquote of like what's yeah. happening there's so much going on underneath that mm -hmm. that plays with our expectations and how we how things operate and i think when things break that too much it's uh it's like incomprehensible and yeah, not, it becomes jarring doesn't appeal yeah so the example we've been talking about in terms of sort of how what i alluded to in in that video about uh, judah and tamar and um 
things that you see pop up in like the Genesis narrative and uh, what we'll get to here in a minute of how John, the writer of Revelations, uh, uses the Old Testament is there's a lot of intertextuality at play, especially like new to Old Testament or even Old Testament to Old Testament. Yeah. But there's a lot of like, okay, this has gone on before in the scriptures or this story mm -hmm. reflects this story, right? You have, Jesus does this all the time. Yeah. Well, they, I mean. Paralleling himself to Moses. Yeah. What the biblical the authors, a, a lot of what the biblical authors and characters do is they basically, it's a way of ancient world hyperlinking the story that you're reading to another story within the biblical corpus, mm -hmm. right? So um, this idea of intertextuality, it just, it may, what it does is, I mean, when Jesus says, um, I'm trying to think of a good example, um, or, or when the gospel of Mark opens with quotations from the Old Testament, right? Mm -hmm. The gospel writer isn't just thinking, okay, I want them to read this section. The gospel writer is thinking, this, where this section comes from says something important about what's happening right now in the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's wanting you not to just read those words on the page, but wanting you to know what the words on the, on the page here said on the page they originally came from mm -hmm. and the entire section around it. Um, intertextuality is a wonderful artistic tool and a wonderful tool for building narrative. Yeah, and I think my point with all those examples, be it very specific ones, are in like the music examples and in the film examples is yeah. this happens all the time, not even just in the same movie, but in the same genres yeah. or in the expectations of genres, right? Yeah. Um, the one that we've been talking about is a pretty new one. So I guess spoiler, or, but yeah. <laughs> again, it's like made over a billion dollars. So I'm not really worried about spoiling it. Uh, yeah. Spider-Man No Way Home, yeah. right? Like the whole film is intertextuality. Like, oh, absolutely. This is literally what it is all about. So you, you have... don't get you'll get 50 percent of the jokes if you haven't watched like five other movies, at least. Yeah. Yeah. And even you could definitely make the whole argument. And this is would be a very easy argument to make that all of what the MCU has done over the past 15 years. Yeah is a huge practice in well elongated storytelling one, but like yeah. intertextuality, even inside of that, because, mm -hmm. well, if you didn't see Age of Ultron, then like you don't understand Civil War because yeah. what are the Sokovia Accords, yeah. right? And why do they matter? And why are Tony why and are Cap agreeing? And, yeah. yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. what is this whole conflict? Well, you don't get it because you didn't watch the movie before this. So like, yeah. or not even the movie before this, the one that like feeds into this narrative, yeah. And like, this is why I get mad when people are like, oh, people nowadays are dumb. I'm like, have you heard people talk about like the MCU movies? Yeah. Do you like get how in they are on like how complex some of this storytelling is going? Even though this is like mm -hmm. maybe a, to make the point that uh, Scorsese has been making, like this is a theme park. It's not necessarily cinema. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that debate at all. Yeah. It's been happening on like film YouTube for a couple years now um yeah. but anyway like the but the point is even in like what could be considered popcorn movies and they very mm -hmm. much are yeah uh they fall in the superhero genre they fall in the like comic book movie genre mm -hmm. they but they're doing things like this and using what came before it to build this movie anyone oh, who watches a tv series knows this yeah. right yeah well and 
what I think is super interesting, and you can use this as an example to make another point about the Bible, is that at this point, if I was to recommend to, I have several friends in the area who haven't really watched much of the MCU at all, right? And so I can't just say, hey, go watch the show Loki. It's really good, right? Mm -hmm. Because they have no idea what's going on. Yeah. And so many times we have that expectation with the Bible, right? Is we just hand someone the Bible and say, okay, like, I mean, obviously you have to start somewhere as a new Christian, right? But we don't help them understand that there's a complex narrative being woven around even the gospels. Mm -hmm. And, and so we expect them to just be able to pick it up and get it. And we don't really do a good job of educating them about the, we don't do a job, good job of educating ourselves sometimes about the way in which the whole biblical canon informs itself in a cross play, mm -hmm. just like the MCU does. Yeah, and even and even wider than that, we'll get back. This will bring us back to the Spider-Man analogy. Yeah, or like example. <clears throat> so you have like uh, Tom Holland Spider-Man that's been happening that happened for two movies prior to No Way Home, and the like Spider-Man trilogy that they made within the MCU. So even yeah. here, you have an intertextuality of like yeah. MCU at large, Spider-Man specifically, like Tom Holland's incarnation mm -hmm. i'll use that word of yeah yeah of spider-man right that's yeah. different than mm -hmm. the other spider-mans but yeah anyway still dude because i rewatched the other two recently because i'm trying to get my roommate we're gonna go see no way home again this weekend nice the this is how deep this the end credit sorry i'm gonna like nerd out on these movies for a minute that's fine the I end love credit scene in um uh the first one uh homecoming yeah which is just think about that title for a second yeah, um yeah, yeah yeah well that's some pretty artistic and clever anyway sorry so yeah yeah because they go to home yeah anyway um god even that title is intertextual right yeah. um as all good titles should be um but you have the end credit scene, spoiler for a movie that's been out for like five years, um, of uh, Michael Keaton's uh, uh, Vulture. What's oh, Adrian Vulture? Dooms. Yeah, I almost said Falcon. I was like, no, that's not right. Um, <laughs> yeah, of him meeting Scorpion from yeah. from where? Andrew Garfield's universe, right? Yeah. So I think, yeah, I don't really even, remember. It's been a minute. So, yeah. But so, like, you have that in credit scene that like connects the two already. So, yeah. you have Marvel at large, you have Tom Holland Spider Man. But even in the first Tom Holland Spider Man movie, you have like subtweets, let's say, to mm -hmm. other Spider Man properties that have existed years before this. Yeah. From so, and there's a big like bureaucratic thing going on here because it's like Sony and Marvel. Yeah. Who owns yeah. Spider Man and who can do what? But that's a different conversation. Yeah. Um, so you have that going on. And then not only do you have that, but in No Way Home, you have the coalescence of all this. So you have mm -hmm. MCU at large, this whole storyline that's going on. Tom Holland's, you know, what would be three movies in Spider-Man within the MCU. And then you have the introduction of all the other Spider-Mans, like intertextually linked to yeah. this Spider-Man now in this universe, because there's now 
like a multiverse, right? Yep. And then, but not only do you have that, you have all the references as we've talked about in the movie, you know what, Peter, I'm somewhat of a scientist myself, to yep. like yep. jokes in this movie that you don't get if you haven't seen Spider-Man 1 that came out in 2001. Yeah. Right? Or two. Yeah. I think it was one. One um, or two, something like that. And then uh, you have all the conversations that the different Spider-Mans have about their powers and like, mm-hmm. I can joke about like some of the things I didn't think landed, but yeah, like there's that, like this is, and this is how deep it goes. Like there's that joke though. They're on the Statue of Liberty and the new Statue of Liberty with the Captain America shield, which that's a whole another reference there um, where uh, Maguire and, and uh, Garfield are talking and uh, Garfield goes, yeah, but I'm like, I'm I'm like boring. I'm a bad Spider-Man or something like that. And then mm-hmm. uh, McGuire goes, no, no, you're the amazing Spider-Man. And it's just like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Literally yeah. just a reference to like yeah. his line of Spider-Man being the amazing Spider-Man, which is his comic line, which, but yeah. it's also a movie like series. Yeah. So point is you have the iceberg essentially of yeah. like Marvel, MCU, Tom Holland, Spider-Man, his Spider-Man trilogy that interlinks to like the other Spider-Man films, but those are the Spider-Man films also linked to like the comic book movies. And even if you watch like the Spider-Man series animated from the nineties, yeah, there's a whole Mysterio storyline that is literally uh, far from home. Yeah. 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 The, the whole end. So what's super interesting is the way in which all of that ties together and like, it takes someone who's really, really knowledgeable about that topic in order to make all of those connections. And me being like a super big nerd who's loved Spider-Man since I was six, sitting in the theaters watching this, I'm having the time of my life. And yeah, some of the jokes don't land, you know, whatever. There are some critiques of the movie. We can, yeah, we but, can debate the movie but, another time. But, yeah, but, ul- but ultimately, like it's... It's something that because I've been engrossed in this, mm-hmm. it's amazing. And what then happened, like, and just to take it back to the subject that we, we start with, like, it, it's the same thing with the Bible, right? And I'm, one of the reasons I think we misinterpret the book of Revelation, for example, so often in our culture, and I know you're going to get into this in a little yeah. while, yeah. is we don't know the Bible well enough to recognize when John's not saying something literally, he's saying something literarily. Yep. Right. And that's a problem. Yep. Let's, let's, uh, let's like, I'll, we'll come back to that here in just a second, but I want to have a really brief conversation about um, like language intertextuality and that quote you had about, um, uh, capturing the meaning subjectively expressed in words with multiple possible meanings and translations. Because language, like us as humans who speak languages, are yeah. always stuck at a certain point in time. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a like relevant, slightly controversial example. So my buddy, <clears throat> who just got a, a puppy not that long ago, we were hanging out and he was talking about him having to go to the vet and get vaccines for her because dogs have to get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2022, when you hear me say that word vaccine and vaccinated, yeah, what pops into your head? 
a very intense political debate that has very broad implications for our society as a whole. Right. But you're not thinking about a dog eating a parvo vaccine, yeah. which is what he was talking about. Right. Yep. So I even in that moment, I had to be like, oh my gosh, this word has, I literally thought this, I was like, that word has such different meaning right now. Like, yeah. Even in my own head about mm-hmm. like, the conversation we were having, and I knew what we were talking about. Yeah. But in my head, I'm like, dude, you say that word vaccine and all these things, like the word tree just pops up. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and this is why context, and this is where I have trouble with certain interpretive frames now that are very postmodern, is like context is the key to understanding like all the ways in which words are being used. Yeah. Um, and there's a different conversation about like what words are in bounds or not in bounds. And that's a whole nother conversation. But the point is that like inherently yeah. because we as humans are stuck in time trying to communicate to each other, our words are also stuck in time. So like words have certain meaning now, like vaccine mm-hmm. or vaccinated that had completely different meanings five years ago or three years ago. Yeah. Right. Um, Daniel, spell the word rain for me. Rain, like mm-hmm. weather rain. Spell the word rain. R A I N. Nope. I wasn't thinking about the weather. I was thinking about a king uh, rainy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. But that's yeah. the point. It's yeah. like I have, sir. Now you didn't see it written, so you couldn't assume yeah. the authorial intent, but like, yeah that's how well the, and even, you had it you had even in like synonyms that happen in the english language mm-hmm. and this is what's like beautiful about precise speech right rule mm-hmm. rule seven uh or rule rule ten um precise in your speech this is why that's so important is because mm-hmm. with the more precise speech is and the more you understand what's going on with communication, which is why both speaker and audience are important, right? Yeah. Um, this is why it is important yeah. to like watch how you say things and how they get taken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Is because if you can be precise enough, all of the possibilities of what's being said, like slowly diminish. Yeah. You, you narrow your focus down to just a few i mean you'll probably never be able to get just one option no but you can get just to a few options you're hitting pretty well and that's better than most people hit yeah an example i heard and we'll get to revelation here after after this example but yeah. just to give a like kind of quaint trivial example of this and how this is called relevance theory and language there's a heiser interview that he does on his podcast um not the one i'm going to reference just now but the one that like comes in part of this, he does like interlace with this series on Revelation he's doing, where he talks to another professor about a book he wrote about how relevance theory impacts how we read the Bible. Mm-hmm. And the professor gives this example and they were at the school and they were doing chapel and he walks out of chapel with another professor friend of his. And it's around like noon lunchtime and he holds up an apple to this other professor and he says, um, I'm, I guess I'm gonna go keep the doctor away. Well, there's a lot that is assumed. Yeah. And I'm not a pure structuralist when it comes to language, mind you, but I think there's decent arguments to be made for it. But there's a lot of assumptions he's making in that form of communication, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. He he assumes that you understand the other half of the idiom. 
Mm-hmm. An app and him holding up the apple is part of that assumption, right? Yeah. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. Well, you know, it's like lunchtime, so he's going to go eat. He's not going to like throw it against a tree and watch it, you know, break into a million pieces. Yeah. We don't have idioms about throwing apples against trees. Well, maybe someone somewhere does, but not in America. Only well, not going to um, throw it at a doctor to keep the doctor away either, right? Yeah, you yeah, know yeah that, exactly. Like, I mean, exactly. there's so many different ways you could take that one, even the one phrase without the greater cultural understanding. Yeah. And so like, but that's also what's keen about like this instance of communication is through everything he says and has literally in his hand, he is yeah. narrowing the spectrum of like what he is talking about. Yeah. So um, all that is to say, the Bible is doing very complicated things with its communication. And so just to, and the big point of that podcast episode is like why plain reading hermeneutic is essentially like untenable um, mm-hmm. because here's what we do with people who are, who do plain readings of things and communication. We've talked about this. Yeah. It's played off as comedy. Yeah. yeah. There's a reason that Drax, and I think it's yes. hilarious, is like, yes. <laughs> there's a reason Drax is funny. Yeah. In Guardians of the Galaxy to make another Marvel reference. Yeah, because he does not understand metaphor and simile and like analogy and language. Literally everything. Well, at, is at some point, at some point, I plan on actually using that as an example in a paper. Um, is because like I, I'm I'm going to make the point that we are all Drax the Destroyer when it comes to biblical interpretation. Sometimes mm-hmm. we say, you know, I think. Peter Quill says to Drax, um, it went over your head. And he said, it wouldn't, nothing goes over my head. I would catch it first. My reflexes are too fast. And in making that statement, it's going over his head, right? Yeah. That's, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. the funny part of that scene. And so, yeah, you're, you're right. It's, we all are Drax the Destroyer at some point because we misunderstand what the Bible is saying, and then we claim, no, I, I totally get it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, like, getting to the bottom of the iceberg is sometimes very difficult, but as we've made reference with Spider-Man, a very, like, relevant thing at our cultural moment, mm-hmm. understanding all the layers of what's going on, um, is essential to getting literally grasping what's happening so it doesn't fly over your head um we can't like the the end goal like if we don't like the way the tool is working to get us to our end goal sometimes we just throw the tool away right and i think if it's a good tool it deserves to be treated well with respect yeah. Even if it takes us longer to get where we're going. And not the, and I and I'm not making this argument to say that the historical critical method is flawless. Yeah. Or it I is the end all be all of interpretation. That's part of the critique we're laying out here is that yeah. sometimes it's not. Sometimes yeah. the Bible is doing much more literary and artistic work than it is mm-hmm. doing anything that someone who is uber obsessed with synchronizing the gospels or like yeah. figuring out which one was written when is concerned about in doing historical critical interpretation or hermeneutics. Yeah. 
um, yeah. like, but I think the point we're making is that even within an artistic interpretation, and I think to properly understand art, even with our Spider-Man example, yeah, Spider-Man No Way Home doesn't exist if Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man never yeah. got made in 2001. Yeah. It is contingent upon that fact. Yep. So it is an artistic expression that happens at a specific time and a specific place because of what had happened before. And it's doing all these things with like the literature of the movie and the like aspects of filmmaking and the intertextual jokes. Mm -hmm. But it's still contingent upon you understanding what happened before placing the art in a specific time. Yeah. And I think that's more what I think we're concerned about is yeah. Okay, if the Bible is going to do a lot of literary artistic things, then like, and this is essential, and I think understand Genesis, understanding mm -hmm. the other artistic literary things that go on, like the examples we've given within this certain genre of biblical, yeah, yeah. Uh, art within. Go back this, to our first conversation we had the day we technically met and recorded our first podcast. Like that was all talking about the greater context in which Genesis was brought forth. And mm -hmm. how Genesis is a critique of that greater context. Mm -hmm. Right. And then if you like, okay, we picked on some like more like progressive liberal theology, but like to yeah. pick on the conservatives. Yeah. Then to say like, oh no, but interpretation of Genesis is um, seven day creation uh, mm -hmm. liberalism, like yeah. Ken Ham is also absurd. Well, and I mean, Augustine isn't interpreting Genesis one that way. No, even right? though he and would it, say literal. This and is, that's his literal interpretation. Language. Right? That's his literal interpretation. But we, 1,500 years later in the American context, being challenged by the polemic of evolutionary theory mm -hmm. has created such a rigid structure around that one concept that it's funny. I was listening to um, N.T. Wright earlier today. On, um, on a podcast and he was talking about how that that polemic doesn't exist as strongly within the Christian imagination outside of America mm -hmm. and it's just because in our context that has become so crucial and well-grounded um, and so yeah we've picked on the the, the left-leaning theologians um, but I was actually expecting more of the critique of this conversation to be um, because we lean too far that way. And I think we've maybe- No, no, and I think that's true. And in a lot of evangelical circles, that is the case. Yeah. Um, I just brought up what I brought up because it's been on my mind because of what we read for my class yeah. two days ago. Yeah. Um, so, and it seems to be the way scholarship at least now is trending. Mm -hmm. So that's important yeah. to keep in mind. Yeah, um, I agree. I totally agree. But okay, so sorry that no. you might not even listener might not even know the whole rabbit trail that just happened. I might just cut right to the revelation here to keep to keep things rolling. <laughs> um, but I wanted to talk about how so we've made the case for it is super important to interpret the Bible artistically and literarily, and that the plain reading isn't always a plain reading, a and b 
is usually uh, unhelpful because you turn into Drax the Destroyer uh, and things not going over your head because you're going to catch them. Uh, yeah. But I, I wanted to give, rather than just say that and like have you accept it as a listener because I'm so smart, I'm in school, we know what we're <laughs> talking about. Uh, I'm, I wanted to play a couple excerpts from actually two episodes of Michael Heiser's podcast, The Naked Bible, as he intros and then talks about his series in Revelation, and then does some hermeneutical work about how, how intertextual John is in writing the Revelation, and how he is very sneaky, let's say. You have to have a very keen eye. We'll talk about having keen eyes later in this podcast, hopefully. Um, but you have to really be paying attention. And this is this goes to the point that has been being made about um, art happens in a particular place at a particular time. And so to deny that place and time is to uh, rip some of the meaning away from the art. Um, because as we all know, there are all things, so there are things that sway culture and uh, us as people and as countries uh, and as cultures, uh, as nationalities, uh, as races, like at specific times and specific histories. So like the art that comes out of that is going to reflect that specific time, right? A uh, great example of this would be like blues music uh, or like rock and roll, hip hop even. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, and you can think about why I used all those examples. Anyway, there's more that can be used, but those have particularly been on my mind recently too. <laughs> so we're going to talk about how John uses the specific things of his day and how he uses the Old Testament to be intertextual in, uh, in the Bible. So I got a screen there. Thank God I can edit. We don't do this live. Um, <laughs> uh, here, I got to share my audio as well. Oh no, that's not what I want. See, I haven't done this in so long that uh, that this, oh, here we go. Like you said, thank God you can edit. All right, here we are. Uh, Daniel, let me know if you can hear this. Uh, I have okay. rough uh, stamps for time for time here on these two episodes. So this first one is uh, from the intro. As you can tell from the title, it's uh, introduced in the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. This is Heiser's hermeneutic throughout the whole series is how to, literally is an intertextual conversation of how does John use the Old Testament? But I think this portion here, Heiser talks about how John specifically is using the Old Testament in a different manner than say the writer of Hebrews, or Paul, or the gospel writers do in his book specifically. Self. Things like that? the Damascus rule, the Habakkuk Pesher, okay, the, the Florilegium, it's 4QFLOR. This is a wisdom text from Qumran. These things are easy to compare. The Gospels and Paul's major epistles are easy to compare to this kind of Dead Sea Scroll stuff because they all contain explicit Old Testament quotations. So when Paul quotes an Old Testament passage, he's saying, Sometimes some of these other texts also explicitly quote the same passage. And then you can kind of see what, what the two writers, you know, some Qumran document versus Paul, 
how they're interpreting some some section of the Old Testament. You can you can track their writing, what they're thinking to the same source. In other words, it's easy because they're both explicitly quoting the Old Testament at, at a given point. But Moise continues, the book of Revelation, however, never uses introductory formula to introduce its Old Testament references. It's never going to use stuff like, as it is written, you know, to telegraph what, what John's going to do. He doesn't do that. So he, he never uses introductory formula to introduce its Old Testament references, but weaves its words, the, old, the words of the Old Testament, and phrases into its own composition. So what, what it comes down to is there, there are few, if any, and some would say no explicit quotations of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Instead, what you get is you get John drawing words and phrases from different parts of the Old Testament or the same section of the Old Testament and using that to create his own content. And since he's only using bits, even when the bits cluster, it's harder to know exactly where he's drawing things from because that phrase he uses might show up in in 10 different Old Testament passage or passages, or maybe only one, or maybe three. So which one was John really thinking of? Again, it, it's hard to figure out what he's doing. And this discouraged scholars from spending a lot of time, you know, in, in this line of inquiry. But Moise continues. I'll stop it there. Um, so, yeah. Uh, before I go on, because I'm going to go on to uh, a, a a short section in the next episode where Heiser begins to deal with some of these specific quotations. Yeah. Um, I think the first one is really, really interesting because um, he talks about John's uh, title for God used in yeah. uh, Revelation 1-4, how it's a quotation of Exodus 3-14, which we can read those here in a second, but about how there John is subverting not only what's expected in the quotation of Revelation 3.14, he is using it as a polemic against what was used for as titles for Zeus in Greek literature. Wow. Um, but so do you so before I play that though, any thoughts on what was just said about well, John's use of the Old Testament? Um, I think he's 100 percent correct in John's use of the Old Testament. And I would say that um, I do have a critique though, as he said that, or he maybe didn't say, but implied that the gospel writers don't also use the Old Testament as subtly, um, saying that, you know, they have the, the block quotations of like, you know, as it is written, and then, you know, you follow, um, the, the quotation follows from that. Mm -hmm. I think both the gospel writers and Paul, all of them actually do the same thing Revelation does in including key phrases um, that when recognized, um, I was going to try to find a quote, but I'll just generally, um, paraphrase, but in this book, um, echoes of uh, scripture in the gospels. And then there's another book in the letters of Paul, uh, by Richard Hayes. He talks about how, um, in the gospels book, how the gospels and in the letters of Paul, how Paul does this, um, how, there are several different ways in which these intertextual references happen. Um, he says one is a direct quote. One is, um, I can't remember the term he used, 
Um, one is a direct quote, one is more or less a paraphrase or almost word for word, close enough. And then he says um, the, the most subtle he calls an echo, which is where he gets the, the title from. And John in Revelation is basically all echoes. Mm -hmm. um, but how these things do actually exist in all of the other books in the New Testament. Um, yeah, and I think you're right in that critique. I think the larger point is that that's what makes Revelation so difficult yes. is that you don't yes. have it like Hebrews where you yeah. have block quotes of the yeah. Old Testament yeah. of what it's the writer of Hebrews is trying to subvert mm -hmm. or expound upon even in, yeah. in their writing about this being this way back then, but it was just shadows of what was to come, yeah. right? You, you get a, and I don't know if we have time to go there, but you get a, a like sly inversion of um uh gosh it's hebrews 2 but it's a quotation of psalm uh is the creation psalm mm, oh i feel like i want to say 25 or 18 yeah i don't remember we had a whole uh uh sunday at my church where we discussed how the inversion happens in hebrews and why that's important of uh of the psalm of creation talking about how and this is in the but it is also a quotation right about mm -hmm. who's man that you're mindful of him yeah you know those those statements but it becomes a creation psalm about jesus yeah in hebrews and putting things under his dominion and not just the dominion of man yeah at large mm -hmm. which is what's happening in the psalms so again these things are sneaky these yeah. things are subversive. These mm -hmm. things are complicated. They're subtle. They're very subtle. To go back to our conversation about why Christians suck at doing art. <laughs> um, Didn't you cut that out? No, I kept it. It's actually some okay. Smith. Um, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I cut out the us watching uh, Google mm. hunting, which maybe, That's I don't right. know. Do I regret that now? Maybe not. Um, anyway, let's move on to... So I'm, I'm making this case that this, what we're arguing happens in No Way Home is yeah. very relevant to how the Bible operates and is intertextual yeah. and it's difficult to understand. So let's move on to a specific example Heiser talks about in Revelation 1-4. Um, I don't know exactly how much of this is going to get played, um, probably no more than three or four minutes because he likes to rabbit trail like we do. So uh, <laughs> we'll just see where it goes yeah. and... Uh, I'll, I'll play enough that he can make his case and we can understand where he's going. Um, let me skip ahead here. Got 15 minutes, that's good enough. Again, they're talking about, um, so you can see it on the screen here, uh, Revelation 1 and 4, where we find the phrase, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. The phrase is repeated in Revelation 1 8, um, and it's a direct quotation of the Septuagint, um, but it's bad Greek. But the uh, argument that Heiser makes, along with other scholars, is that that bad Greek is on purpose because John's evidently not bad at all Greek. So um, mm -hmm. he's causing a direct cor correlation there because he doesn't phrase it exactly right. It's like when we quote Shakespeare. Well, that's not how we talk. 
Yeah. Some of that language is off. It's not exactly how we structure sentences now in modern English. Again, back to the like language is happening at a particular time, particular place. Mm -hmm. And like someone earlier made a joke of like, I bite my thumb at you. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. Right. <laughs> yeah. But like, this is a Shakespeare thing. And it's a, like, again, this is all complicated. It's messy. Yeah. So, but here, let's. So, this is what they're referencing is these quotations in Revelation 1 4, why John uses this explicit quotation. So, we'll let, we'll let him explain. Is considered by scholars to be contemporaneous with the book of Revelation. Oh, okay, so, on, well, though, just a bit. seems, you know, coherent. But none of this is an exact parallel to the Septuagint of Exodus 3.14 or John 1.4. But, but you get similar language about these other gods, the Greek gods. There's actually a closer parallel, though. Uh, a Greek writer, Pausanias, uh, citing an oracle at Dodona is the, is the one that's... They're talking about that phrase, who, who is, who was, and who is to come, specifically yeah. right now. Really close. And this, this text is considered by scholars to be contemporaneous with the book of Revelation. So, you know, first century when, when John's writing, or maybe a little bit before, and it describes Zeus. And here's the description. Zeus is described as Zeus was, Zeus is, Zeus shall be. Oh, mighty Zeus. Zeus, of course, was considered at the time in the pagan world to be the most high. Uh, the, the term hupsistos in Greek, which means most high, is used of Zeus a lot. So you, people, the, again, the, the pagan world is thinking Zeus is the most high deity. And he was, and he is, and he shall be. So it, as soon as you run into that, you're thinking, okay, it, it, it seems like John is taking a shot at the Greco-Roman most high god, Zeus. I'm going to read a little something from DDD, Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible, about the term hupsistos. It says, uh, this is a superlative form from the adverb hupsi, there is, again, which means high or highest or most high. You have the article up front, so, you know, it serves as a noun. So hupsistos, ha, hupsistos, the most high. And it has the sense of most high or highest. In the Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible, again, that would be the Septuagint, Elyon, the Hebrew word Elyon, is always translated by ha hupsistos, the most high. In these instances, as in the Greek literature of Judaism in the Second Temple period, and in the literature of primitive Christianity, the expression ha hupsistos refers to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In non-Jewish or non-Christian texts written in Greek, the expression occurs as a divine name for Zeus. Okay, so, it's the end of the quote. Did the Septuagint translator, it's a good question, did the Jew, you know, who in the Hellenistic period, who, the guys who did the work translating the Hebrew Bible into Greek, did the guy who got Exodus, did he render the divine name in Exodus 3.14 the way he did to challenge the status of Zeus. I mean, because, you know, he who is. Ego me, I, I myself am the one who is. Okay, is, is, is that a shot? Because what, what John does is John takes that and then he adds it. I mean, he, John makes it completely transparent because he adds the other two elements that he is, it's pretty evident if you were a Greek, a, a Greek person, if you were a Gentile especially, but if you knew Greek well, you, you know, you're familiar with this title. 
And John is not talking about Zeus here. He's talking about the God of Israel. He gives him this titling of Zeus, which ties in back to Exodus 3.14, the burning bush. So it, it seems that this is what John's doing. He's, he's sort of laying down the gauntlet. And McDonough picks up on this point and he says, All right, I'm going to stop it there. Um, hey, no, you keep nodding your head. So I'm going to, I have one more like snippet from this episode I'm going to play, but yeah, any, any comments on that? And if, yeah, if I started it too soon and, uh, I will link these two episodes in the description if you want to listen to the full thing, I highly recommend them. Uh, but if you didn't catch Heiser's basic point is, He's doing a polemic to Zeus, as well as making a direct quotation of Exodus 3.14 in reference to God. And in the narrative he's telling, it's clear that the reference is to God in Revelation 1.4. Yeah. Um, So that's that's crazy. Um, This morning, actually, um, in preparation for my Romans class, I read um, a, um, a commentary, and in this specific section of the commentary, it was talking about how Jews related to Roman society, mm-hmm. um, and apparently there was a rather prominent Roman official who we have his writings, and he refers to the Jews as those who worship Zeus by another name. Hmm. And I thought that was really interesting. And now it just really clicked in my head. The, one of the reasons why I thought that was interesting was because it made me ask the question, why Zeus? Why not one of the other gods of the Pantheon? And, you know, naturally I was kind of like, well, Zeus is like their top guy, right? Um, but now this makes so much more sense, right? Because the parallel to Zeus isn't just in the rank of the gods, right? It's not Yahweh versus Zeus because Yahweh is the highest and Zeus is the highest, but it's also linguistic in the Septuagint. It's embedded in it. Um, that's crazy. But it's yeah. complicated, man. There's layers. There's that's layers. Fantastic. That is fantastic. All right, let's, I'll play maybe another minute and a half of uh, this next, I have this next timestamp. I didn't make reference to exactly what is it, what timestamp. So gotcha. don't be surprised. But this is how Zeus is described. And McDonough continues. As they sang at Dodona, Zeus was, Zeus is, and Zeus will be. The name Yahweh, we will see, was ready to enter the etymological fray as the one who is. But this in turn led back to the questions posed by Greek philosophers about the nature of being and its relationship to time and space. Yahweh's confrontation with the gods of the nations was about to take a new turn. So again, this is a McDonough and other commentators are thinking what John's doing here is in fact, not just, Hey, remember the, you know, Hey, you readers who might have some acquaintance with Judaism. I'm using this phrase now and I'm committing a grammatical error so that you go look and find Exodus 3.14. Oh, well, you know, okay, the, the same God of Exodus 3.14, the same God of the burning bush is the God that John's writing about now. Well, that, that's all true. John wants people to see that, but he wants more. So he supplements it. It's not only the he who is, but he who was and who was to come. And when he, when he adds those two elements, 
it's a swipe at Zeus. So it, so now he's looping the pagans in too, and, and anybody else in the Jewish community who might be familiar with how you know pagans looked at Zeus and how Zeus was set as a rival or, or better than Yahweh. So just this one little selection from Exodus 3.14, and then supplementing it a little bit, you know, give, giving it a little more play, is actually, again, theological telegraphing. It's significant. So just to go on here, um, you know. We can stop there. That's enough examples, at least for now. But yeah, That's... John is uh, subtweeting Zeus, even yeah. in his, uh, in his, so, and what's, what is so important to catch is that it's only that first phrase that John is directly quoting Exodus 3.14, mm -hmm. the one who is. And then he adds the other two articles to yeah. further his point. So it's literally in the same sentence. Uh, he is doing two things at once mm -hmm. with two different contexts. I'm trying to think of a good like example of uh, the way we mix metaphors is maybe a like lesser example of this. Yeah. Um, but uh, what's um, like? If you can think of any examples of how we, I mean, it happens in conversation all the time, again, because we're not being literalists. We're, yeah. we're trying to you know, explain things as we go. Um, and, you know, you'll have a conversation with somebody when you're trying to figure something out, you're trying to think about, think about things. And you say, someone might start the conversation and say like this situation or this concept we're talking about is analogous to uh, this thing over here. And then you might say, someone in the conversation later might say, well, to maybe stretch that analogy more or yeah. to uh, to like bend that some, it's like this or like that in this way. And then someone might say, oh no, but this is a better way to describe that thing, kind of piggybacking off that analogy. Um, this happens all the time. Like we say that things are foundational when we're not talking about construction. Yeah. Right. Or I mean, draw me a bath. That's that's not you're not drawing a bath, you know, like yeah. you know, no one yeah. thinks that that's yeah. what you're doing. <laughs> right. Um so yeah. I, we when we expect the Bible to do something that no one actually does in real life with language. It's completely unrealistic expectation. Mm -hmm. It just is, which is why historical, literary, linguistic, and cultural context matter, right? If we didn't have the linguistic yeah. context, you wouldn't be able to recognize the, um, the hyperlink to Exodus. And if you didn't have the cultural context, you wouldn't be able to recognize the hyperlink to Zeus. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we didn't have the historical background on that, we wouldn't be able to understand the significance of that. Um, and because we know that Revelation is an apocalypse, just like the book of Daniel or other apocalypses. Yeah, or the, even these portions of the book of Daniel. Yeah. Um, then 
we wouldn't know what to expect of revelation. That's, we, I think that's also part of our difficulty in understanding revelation. I made this point to other people. Mm-hmm. We have no yeah. modern, and I might even said this to you, we have no modern proxy for apocalyptic literature. No. We know how poetry works. So we can read biblical poetry and understand like, yeah, okay, cool. Like I get to not literally take everything at face value, right? Yeah. There's hyperbole, there's analogy, there's yeah. word images pictures right god is not literally a fortress mm-hmm. right um we know how at the at least at some level how uh like i mean i know the gospels aren't specifically biographical narratives in the way that we would think of them now yeah um, but they are doing like some of that. Yeah. Right? So we get that idea. We understand uh, the epistles more so because they're uh, letters. mostly letters of encouragement yeah. or of correction. Yeah. Right? So we understand uh, how to like theologize advice, let's say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, although maybe we're not as good as that as we would like to think. Uh, yeah. We understand how history and even myth work so like genesis exodus we understand how law at least at some level works so we get deuteronomy and leviticus and all this stuff um we understand like historical narratives so like first second king samuel prophetic books um we have no modern equivalent to apocalyptic literature so it is really and how do we understand like and this is why i think peterson's work especially in the first two lectures of his biblical series is helpful Mm -hmm. what do we do with dreams and visions how are we to understand them right i mean i'll just i'll give you i just want to give a a crazy example so let's talk about um, uh, ezekiel Um, I need, thank you. He talks about all these winds and these creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to find the specific reference. Okay, this is the beginning of chapter two after he has all these visions. Mm -hmm. His call to be a prophet. He said to me, son of man, stand up. And he sees the Lord. He says to me, son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. Side note, this is why Jesus' use of son of man is debated. Because there's many instances. There's different meanings for the phrase within even the biblical canon. Yep. Another conversation. As he spoke, the spirit came into me and raised me to my feet, and I heard him speak to me. He said, son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in a revolt against me to this very day. Hmm, interesting phrase for a modern context. But anyway, the people to whom I am sending you are obstinate, are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, and whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious people. 
they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though, though briars and thorns are all around you and you live among scorpions. Okay, there's some uh, metaphorical language there. Yeah. Do not be afraid of what they say or be terrified by them. Though they are rebellious people, you must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like the rebellious people. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And this is where it gets really yeah. interesting. Yep. Then I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me. In it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. Interesting, the personification of God, by the way. Mm -hmm. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, this is chapter three, son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll and then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. And this is the most interesting phrase, I think, in the whole section. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. what the heck is going on yeah yeah there's a lot of questions here right is he literally yeah. eating the scroll yeah. does it actually taste like that is yeah. this metaphorical representation uh to be taken of what is in the prophet are the words of god yeah right yeah is this well. a dream is this a vision are those different uh, is he like he says the spirit came upon him and he stood up so yeah. how literal is this whole experience well and beyond that it's obviously it means something greater than just the acts that are transpiring so even mm -hmm. if it is literally mm -hmm. happening the question then becomes what does the what do these actions mean mm -hmm. right and then to rope it into our greater point this exact same sequence happens in revelation with john where he's told to eat a scroll and it tastes sweet and when he starts to digest it it makes his stomach upset um and so yeah i mean this image in its original context is already really weird right and then you have to carry that into what john's doing and then, so yeah, we, we don't really have a parallel in our culture to understand the original setting, let alone the reference to it that happens centuries later. Yeah, so I guess to kind of wrap up this conversation, um, I guess my question is, we've talked about how this seem, this reality of the Bible as art uh, affects us and affects our interpretation and reading of the Bible. And this is why I think why, what the Bible pressure does is absolutely amazing and mm. necessary. Yeah. And I, I so know. pertinent because this is, they are on, as far as I can tell, um, with John and Tim. 
they're on a highly literary reading of the Bible mm -hmm. and doing these kinds of things and threading major themes and words and stuff like that. So just praise for them. Uh, but how, I guess my question for us to kind of discuss for a minute is how should this reality, hopefully I've, we've convinced you that it is a real reality of yeah. biblical text in being art and in having to have artful eyes to interpret it or literary eyes to interpret it. How does this affect us mm -hmm. in 2022, in the age of the internet, in spaces where uh, literal readings are very relevant to people, right? Mm -hmm. And, and what, what would be like more evangelical conservative circles and in yeah. where even rejections of those kinds of readings or any kind of historically critical reading seems to be prevalent uh, in academia right now. Yeah. And in, you know, more mainline or like liberal Protestant circles. So, uh, or reader response theories, which maybe this is a good place to start. Uh, what I find saddening, ironic, and in that sense, like hilarious, is that. Um, what we referenced earlier about read response interaction with the Bible yeah. is a pretty postmodern approach to literature. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. How do you, and I think there's something to be said for it. I'm not just going to yeah. shit on this forever. Right. I think there's, uh, there's utility to understanding yeah. that I, I, as a, and this is kind of what we're trying to get at. I, as a person in 2021, informed by all my experience, informed by my culture, informed by my language, this is why like, the work of translation is so difficult, mm -hmm. um, informed by my, you know, my experiences, my culture, my place in the world, right? Me, a 25-year-old in North America, is going to read this way differently than a person who grew up in Tokyo their whole life, but is the same age as me Yeah, and interfaces with the Bible. Right. Yeah. Like all these things are at play, which is, which is the uh, recognition of a lot of postmodern like mm -hmm. philosophy and critiques of yeah. literature, which are all very real and relevant. Mm -hmm. Let us not diminish those. No, not at all. Um, but in the work of interpreting then what's happening with those, what you could say barriers or mm -hmm. um, lenses, I think maybe yeah. is a better word. Um, we have to, maybe if we have time when we're done with this or at another late point, speak about um, Lewis's uh, definition of what literature and literary are supposed to do. Yeah. I think that's a great, that could be a very great conversation. Yeah. Anyway, my point is those are that approach of read response that is very real and relevant and true of I as a reader bring certain things to a text mm -hmm. that have to be wrestled with. Yeah. But that's a pretty liberal progressive generally idea. Yeah. But even in the church settings, the even most conservative church settings I've been in, what happens when we sit down to do Bible study? 
hey, we, uh, we assigned uh, Mark chapter one this week. All right, so uh, what did you guys get from the text this week? Mm -hmm. What yeah. did it mean to you? Yeah. Not a bad question, keep in mm -hmm. mind. No. My point is that they're using a very different approach than what they might think is appropriate. Yeah. Or any other text than the Bible. Because there is something to be said about the universalness of the truths in the Bible and the yeah. ways that they speak to us and what they mean for our lives and how the spirit interacts with our interaction of the text, right? That's all mm -hmm. there. Yeah. I just make that point because it seems so ironic mm -hmm. that in places where, say, a very literal interpretation of Genesis would occur of a seven day creation of mm -hmm. all of that, take a very liberal postmodern approach to Bible study. Yep. Yeah. Well, and I'm not against that at all. In fact, I think maybe I haven't done as good a job at defining the, the artistic bend, right? Because there's the both, both the objective and the subjective. And the objective is definitely that historical, critical, literary analysis, breakdown of the language and all of that. But the subjective is what we bring to the table in that artistic and intuitive and imaginative sense. And we have to use the framework of objectivity that we can verify, which isn't always easy to verify that it is objective in the first place. And that's a whole nother conversation and something that I plan to explore later. But um, we have to use that framework, I think, in order to guide mm -hmm. a more mm -hmm. reader response approach, right? Because it's within that framework that then that reader response approach can grow and flourish. Mm -hmm because anything that grows outside of the bounds can get trimmed off and it can be pruned to the point where it grows something beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, and that was the that artistic was, approach summed up. Not only that was great. That's kind of where I was trying to go with the question is, yeah, what is our response to this way of interpretation? Mm -hmm. Because even in <clears throat> what would be considered very conservative circles, a very liberal approach to interfacing mm -hmm. with the Bible is taken every week in Bible studies. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> well, and one other thing that this whole writing this paper that I did and thinking about it in preparation for today um, has really given me is, and there's an Augustine quote that I put in the paper. I'll read it real quick. Um, what is difficult for me if I understand the text in a way different from someone else who understands scriptural uh, the scriptural author in another sense. What he's saying here is, as long as we're both within some kind of generally Christian bounds, if you come away from the text with something different than I do, and we can't verify which one of us is objectively correct, we can still live in community. Mm -hmm. We should have enough intellectual humility to be okay with each other and to love each other and to grow. Right. And so with, I mean, to go beyond just this, this interpretive method, implicit in it is a sense of humility in myself that the objective sometimes, and even this, and especially the subjective interpretations that I bring to the table might not be correct. And you might be correct. And I need to love and respect you even when we come into conflict. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I think what we're fighting for or proposing more so in this episode is um, kind of what it means to play the game in bounds, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because I take any any sport, I'll use basketball just because yeah. I know it the best. The game would be utter chaos if there was no boundary lines for the court. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, and like we said earlier, any interpretation you have has its own boundary lines, mm-hmm. whether you recognize them or not. Yeah. The struggle that we have here is, okay, how do we take the approaches that have been given through history and how we know the Bible works in and of itself to then understand uh, what's going on here, right? And so, but even within within the bounds of the court on a for basketball, you have different positions. You have 10 players, five on one side, five on the other. You have a three-point line for a reason because you might want to shoot threes if you're Steph Curry. But if you're Shaq, I don't want you shooting threes, right? Yeah. I don't even want you shooting free throws. Um, yeah. But you can, there's multiple ways to score. Yeah. And you can do it. You could be, to hear mixed analogies, you can be the Kansas City Chiefs and you can do some crazy stuff on the field. Mm-hmm. But the goal is still the same. The goal is to get the touchdown. The goal is to score the basket. The goal is to yeah. get the swoosh. The goal is the buzzer beater, right? Yeah. And so how do we, in the pursuit of understanding God and grasping truth and knowing what it means to follow Jesus, know the proper bounds for interpreting what has been handed to us as scripture? Mm-hmm. And I think all the layers which we've talked about how all this operates and how communication itself operates uh, are important in understanding what it means to score. Yeah, no, I agree. And to, I guess, bring us at least a little bit closer to a close, um, one thing that kept coming to mind as I was thinking about this and preparing for this talk is Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, He talks about now we see through a a glass darkly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we shall see face to face. Then we shall see more clearly, right? Um, and, and I think about um, another artistic expression is impressionistic painting. Um, you have the realist paintings, and you have the impressionistic. And I think right now we see impressionistically, and what Paul is seeing is later we will see more realistically. But while we live in this impressionistic space, seeing the blurred lines and the muddled colors. We have three things, right? Faith, hope, and love is what he follows that up with. Um, And as we start to see more clearly, the faith is no longer really as necessary because we're seeing clearly. The hope is no longer really necessary because the thing we're hoping for becomes reality. But the love still is the thing that remains. It persists throughout because we are supposed to love now in the intellectual humility and the difference that we have. And we are still to love then at the culmination when we see perfectly clear. And so I guess if there's one thing that this artistic interpretive lens I hope brings is that humility to love now 
as it points to the love that we're supposed to have, even in the culmination of all things. Hmm. All right, well, that's the best place, if any, I think to end it. So I will stop recording. Sounds good. Um, yeah. King commies, look out, tell them, look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. But Stevie's inner visions, touch your eyes and make the world move. Wifey bob her head and make her curls move. Crown jewel is character, and this ain't immortality with fairy dust. Never land, never say I never gave you hands. If I can't give them back, then you look like the lesson.